0: The official charge against Jesus was that he claimed to be the king of the Jews and so the soldiers took advantage of that. Took advantage of that opportunity to pay, I don't know, their their homage, their respect to the Jewish king. First they stripped Jesus. Put the scarlet robe on him. He'd already been scourged and so clothes are being torn off him once and a new set of clothing being put on him which will eventually be torn off his, his, his bloody skin again a second time. All those open wounds in his bleeding body. They said this, a king has to have a crown. So they fashioned a crown of thorns and they pressed it into his brow. And I, I think about this and I just think, you know, with a word, just a, just a simple word, Jesus could have set himself free. You know, he could have ascended into heaven he could have said, if this is the response of Israel to her Messiah, if this is the response of the Gentiles to the one who could save them, then okay, have at her. You're on your own. I'm out of here. I'll leave you in your sin. But, but the miracle of love was that as they pressed the crown of thorns down into his brow, they were pressing into him the very symbol of man's curse, right? I mean, you remember in the garden, the first Adam was told of sin's curse. The Lord spoke to him and said, cursed is the ground because of you, thorns and thistles it shall bring up for you. And now creation, the creation was pressing the thorns into the brow of the creator. I think about Abraham who had bound Isaac on Mount Moriah. He bound Isaac and he laid his body on the altar. And the scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 22. That as he raised his knife to sacrifice his son. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said. Abraham, Abraham. And he, and he said to the Lord, here I am. And he said to him, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. From now on I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Genesis 22 tells us that Abraham lifted his eyes and he looked behind him and there caught in a thicket was a ram. And Abraham took the ram and he sacrificed it in place of his son and he called the name of that place the Lord will provide. Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. It's often called the Temple Mount, that mountain, that same mountain. The same place where Abraham had had sacrificed the ram and now the lamb of God is caught in the thicket. The thorns pressed into his brow. Pressing into the brow of God incarnate, really the, the symbol of man's curse, the thorns. The soldiers put in his hand a reed as a scepter. They bowed before him in mockery, hailing the king of the Jews. They spat on him. They took the reed and they they hit him in the head with it. And when they had finished their jest, they they tore the robes off him and all these things off him and and they put his clothes back on him and they led him away to be crucified. The Romans um, used crucifixion not only as a way to, to punish their victims, but also as a way to serve as a warning to anyone else, to everyone else. You know, this is what happens to the enemies of Rome. And so what they would do is this, is they would perform Roman crucifixions in very public places. This wasn't something that was happening in a private room, an execution, you know, behind closed doors. This was very public. Usually it happened alongside a a major intersection or a major road. So so it would work like this. You know, Jesus would be marched outside the city. He'd be carrying, carrying his own cross. More than likely, probably just the cross beam. The, the upright would already be in place outside the, the city. And so the procession began. And you think about, you know, the events, the sleeplessness, the beatings, the blood loss. It had taken its toll on Jesus. He's a man. And I imagine the procession was taking too long for the soldiers. I mean, they wanted to get this over with, and so Matthew tells us that they conscripted some help. Look at verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled him to carry his cross. Now it would seem, as you read this, that Simon's in Jerusalem like lots of other people for Passover celebrations, and the soldiers grabbed him out of the crowd compelling him meaning that they, they grabbed him and they forced him to carry this cross and I'm sure that he pled his innocence I, don't, I got nothing to do I don't know this person I, I'm just here with my kids I'm just here to celebrate just a bystander I just happened to be here but the soldiers had their means of compelling a stranger and so they forced him to, to carry the cross and the Bible doesn't tell us what interaction happened between Simon and Jesus. You know, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I, I, but I would actually say this. For Simon, it was actually the right place at the right time. Somehow Jesus won his heart in the midst of this whole scene. His sons, Alexander and Rufus, are are listed in Mark's gospel. They're mentioned in the book of Romans. Apparently these two boys were well-known members of the early church. And I mean, you think about that. You know, here's here's Simon. He's come to Jerusalem to sacrifice his own personal Passover lamb. And what happens? He meets the lamb of God who is sacrificed for him. And at some point, Simon puts his faith in Jesus. Verse 33 says in and when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means "place of a skull," they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he, when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Golgotha, uh, the place of the, the skull, the, the Latin uh, it mean, the name also means Calvary, Calvary was just outside the city. Uh, on one of the major roads that went down to Jericho, it was a busy spot, a busy section of road. It's, it's a busy section of road today. Even today, at the foothill of Golgotha, there's a bus station. And it's just like people everywhere. And it's, it's interesting to stand there. You get this sense of like, this is what it was like on the day that Jesus was crucified. The, the crowds were just going about their business. People were rushing to the Temple Mount. They were traveling Uh, to the place where they were staying, whatever it was. It was a busy roadway. And so before they went to crucify Jesus, they they offered him, Matthew tells us, wine to drink, wine that was mixed with gall. And when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Now, now wine that's mixed with gall was was offered as a bit of a narcotic drink to someone who was about to be crucified. It was kind of, I think in some level, it was kind of a, a little bit of, of mercy to help, help them with the pain. Help them to manage the pain. But we read here that Jesus refused to drink it. He, he had a little taste and then he said, oh no, I'm not, I'm not drinking it. He refused it. It's like this. He wanted to be sober minded as much as he could be in the midst of the pain that he was dealing with. He was, wanted to be in control of his, his faculties. And this is a fulfillment of Psalm 69 verse 21 which says this. They put gall in my food and they gave me sour wine for my thirst. His last act. Before he's nailed to the cross the very last act that Jesus did was to refuse a door of escape. To refuse even just the help of our narcotic to just get him through. The pain of the cross. To get him through the pain of the cross. He refused. And so verse 35 tells us. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. They sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put a charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Give me a sip of water. Crucified. They crucified him. Matthew doesn't tell us any details about that. No details mentioned. I mean, it's like the gap that happens between verse 34 and the verse 35 when it says they crucified him. I, I, guess, I guess just thinking about it in Matthew's, Matthew's day, you know, people knew what it meant when they said he was crucified. And for Matthew, as he penned, penned the gospel, maybe it's just too sacred to even talk about the details and, and what happened. He can't bring his pen to write it, you know? And so it's like you're reading this story and you, it's almost like your eyes can turn away for a moment and the deed's done. It, there he is. You turn your eyes away for a moment and there stands the cross and the Lord is hanging by nails hammered to that piece of wood, one through each hand, and both of his, and and another, a third, pinning his two feet to the wood. Matthew doesn't tell us anything about it, but I think it's it's good for us to get a little bit of a sense of what it was about. Romans didn't hang a person on a cross way up high you know sometimes we think that we see these pictures and we see this hillside and this body and it's like 15 feet up off the ground that wasn't the case when they crucified someone they just raised them like 18 to 24 inches off the ground close to the ground the purpose was this and it was on a roadside right on the roadside so that when the crowds came down the road they could look into the eyes of the person that was hanging there this wasn't something far off up on a hill. It was right there so that every face could see it as they came by. They were crucified actually low enough to the ground so that the dogs could even come and lick their blood as it dripped from their skin. And crucifixion was designed to make death as, as long and as slow and as painful as possible. You know, History actually accounts that, may, that, that many People, Many folks that were crucified lasted days, some upwards of a week hanging on that cross. The baking sun, gasping for breath. The individual would eventually suffocate due to exhaustion, typically they, die, they died of suffocation due to exhaustion because they were they were nailed in a way that they were forced to, that their, the weight of their body was hanging on their arms and pressing on their legs, and it was hard to get your breath and, and so to get a breath of air you 'd have to push push yourself up on that that nail that 's holding your your feet and and get a breath of air and then hang there again and so it was an exhausting way. Uh, to die. When exhaustion finally set in, the person would just typically suffocate. And you know the story. What would the Romans do when they wanted to speed the process? They just break a person's legs. Because then they couldn't gasp for air. And so this was, you know, not just execution. This was execution by torture, right? Right? In fact, Roman law stated this, that a Roman citizen could not be crucified. Rome did not do this to its own citizens unless there was, there was one rule, unless Caesar had instructed it. And so this was a punishment that was reserved for non-Romans. The Roman historian, Tacticus, said this of a crucifixion. He said, it's a torture that's only fit for slaves. And so, you know, as you think about these things, I just, I just think this, that it's... That it's Significant to remember that, that Jesus did not suffer as a victim of circumstances. He was in control. Jesus said in John 10 verse 18 that no one takes my life from me, but I lay, it, I lay down my own life of my own accord. I lay it down freely. And you, know, you think about this, it's, it's just, you think about a cross, it's, it's terrible to be forced to endure such torture, that anyone would ever go through that. But Jesus, on the other hand, freely chose it in submission to the will of the Father. And that's where, you know, we have to see the miracle of his love for us. That it's remarkable. Words cannot describe this kind of love. And I think that's why it's necessary For us to come and look at the cross, even though it's like, it's not fun. Sometimes you don't even want to read it and, you know, maybe you come across it in your quiet time. Or somebody mentioned to me this morning, it's like sometimes, you know, I'm not even looking forward to some of the Easter stuff because I know we're going to be talking so much about the cross. But it can't be comprehended with words. You have to come and look at the cross, so to speak, and realize what God's done for us. And when you you think about it, it's it's like, how can can I ever rightly question God's love for me when I consider what Jesus Christ did for each one of us? He's gone to the most extreme length to demonstrate his love for you. He gave up his life and in the most brutal of fashions. Matthew tells us that that the soldiers... Cast lots to divide up his garments. That was part of their reward and execution. They would, they would get the loot. And they gambled for his clothing, fulfilling Psalm 22 verse 18 that says, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Over his head they placed the charge. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. The other gospels tell us that The Jewish leaders didn't approve of what Pilate had had written. And they tried to have him take down that sign. But he said, what I've written, I have written. The written charge, when they would write a charge for someone that was to be crucified, typically that charge was carried before the prisoner as their procession was made towards the crucifixion. Sometimes they would hang it around the person's neck and then it would be fixed to the cross. And, you know proclaiming why this person had been crucified and just reinforcing the the deterrent effect of seeing someone crucified. There's the charge and the public sees it and they don't want anything to do with that. Verse 38 goes on and Matthew tells us, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now I just think, you know, you might understand the the mockery and the reviling of of the crowds that were just passing by on the road. I imagine hundreds of people throughout the time, probably thousands of people throughout the time that Jesus was hanging there were, were walking by. But it wasn't just those who were passing by that were mocking him. It was the Jewish leaders. They reminded him of his promise to rebuild the temple in three days after it was destroyed. They didn't realize that that was a promise about his resurrection. That they were proclaiming right there at the cross. But they said come down from that cross if you can. Prove to us that you are God's son. Another thing they didn't realize was the fact that, that Jesus stayed on the cross. Did Proved that he was God's son. They mocked his claim to be a savior. He saved others but he cannot save himself. And it was true. He had saved others and they recognized that. But the other truth was this. That if on that day as he hung on that cross. If he had saved himself. Then no one else could ever be saved. He did not come to save his life. But to give his life. The scripture says is a ransom for sinners. And so it's not because he could not. He didn't save himself because he would not. It's because he did not come down that we believe in him. The cross for that matter really it's in a lot of ways it's a throne. The cross and his death that seemed to you know shatter his kingship and shatter the claim of his kingship actually established and confirmed that he is king. King Jesus. And we have to know this about the cross, that Jesus could have come down. Jesus could have come down and saved himself, but if he had saved himself, then he could not save you. And that's why the cross is a a miracle of his love for us. The cross is a miracle of of his love because Jesus was not the victim, but he was the victor as he hung there. He couldn't come down. Or sorry, he could have come down, but he would not come down because this, as we know, there's nothing that can atone for our, our sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so we read on, it says this in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour... There was darkness over the land until the ninth hour, the sixth hour, that's noon. From noon till three o'clock. And when you do the math, Jesus was, in all the gospels, Jesus was crucified about nine o'clock in the morning. It's kind of incredible, all the events that you consider just going on throughout the night and him coming to Pilate. It was probably first thing in the morning, five or six a.m., and he's crucified at nine. And from 9 till noon, he hung on that cross, and there was light. It was probably a nice day like today. The sun was shining. But at noon, after he had been there for three hours, a darkness came over the earth. In fact, the Greek language is very specific. The original text for our Bible is telling us that it's over the entire earth. There's actually historical, non-biblical accounts that speak of the darkness that came over the earth at that point in time. And it's like no human eyes were to gaze on the Lord's final hours. No human eyes were to gaze upon that, you know? And what I would say is it's just like we cannot comprehend what Jesus was enduring at that time. You remember the Passover in Egypt? One of the things that preceded the Passover was that darkness came over the land of Egypt for three days and then the Passover happened. And now here we are in our New Testament accounts and there's three hours of darkness before the Lamb of God is slain for the sins of the world or as he's slain for the sins of the world. Darkness. At his birth there was what in the sky, in the, in the heavens? A star, a light shone upon Bethlehem, pointing the way to the, the manger, leading wise men in darkness. That was at his birth, light shone. But at his death, darkness covered the earth. Because when a, when a man rejects the light of the world, darkness covers his own world, covers his own life. You know, when you put the gospel accounts together and what all the different writers tell us, we, we see that Jesus spoke at least three times before that darkness fell. He, he spoke from the cross at least three times before that darkness came over the earth. In regards to those who mocked, mocked him, he said this, Father, forgive their sins. They know not what they do. He said, Father, I want you to note that. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He spoke to the thief that had mocked him, became repentant. A thief who hung on the cross beside him and Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And the third time we see that Jesus spoke was to the apostle John. And it was regards to his mother, Mary. He asked John, he commanded John to care for his, his mother. And so three times Jesus spoke in the light, but when darkness came, He was silent for those three hours. Nothing's recorded that he spoke. And after three hours, the darkness left, and then Jesus cried out after that darkness. Look at verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine. Psalm 69 verse 21 prophesies that. Filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. I just think, what? I mean, I don't know how they came up with this. Those who were watching thought Jesus was calling Elijah. They didn't understand him. If they would have listened closer, they would have known that he was quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, every other time that Jesus addressed God, every time in the gospels, he addressed him as Father, Abba. Even as he hung earlier on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But this time for the first time from from the cross after the darkness he spoke to God from a distance. Not his father. He said my God. My God. You see the truth is this is that the father cannot look upon sin. And Jesus, Jesus bore our sin but 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us this actually that that Jesus not only bore our sin, but he became sin for us. That he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. The father unable to behold sin or look upon evil or to look upon iniquity, had no choice but to turn his back on the son. To turn his back on his son Jesus, and Jesus Felt the agony of that isolation. And that's that cry. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. I came across this quote in my studies. And I just love it. It says this. Was he scourged? It was that through his stripes you might be healed. Was he condemned though innocent? It was that we might be acquitted the guilty. Did he wear a crown of thorns? It was that we might wear a crown of glory. Was he stripped of his clothing? It was that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was he mocked and reviled? It is that we might be honored and blessed. Was he reckoned a malfactor and numbered among the transgressors? It was that we might be reckoned innocent and justified from all sin. Was he declared unable to save himself? It was that he might be able to save others to the uttermost. Did he die at last? And that the most painful and disgraceful of deaths? It was that we might live forevermore and be exalted to the highest glory. These things are worth remembering the very key to our peace is the right apprehension of the sufferings of Christ. These things, as terrible as they are, are the key to us finding peace and salvation through the Lord. And so we read this in verse 50. It says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. I love that, a loud voice cry I mean it sounds tragic but the truth is this is that a victim of crucifixion typically died of exhaustion suffocation and this cry this loud cry from Jesus was evidence to the fact that there was still vitality in him there was life in him he was not a victim he was a servant not a victim but a volunteer of the father's will Not a victim, but a victor. As he said, no man took his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord. And Matthew tells us he yielded his spirit. That literally means this. Literally, it means to say that he yielded, yielded his spirit means that he sent his spirit away. I like the old King James version. It says this that he gave up the ghost. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. He bid it depart. Imagine that. Jesus bid his spirit depart and it departed. No one took his life. Death did not take his spirit. He gave it up. He gave it up and, and he's not a victim of death, but he's the victor over death. Jesus died Not because he was crucified. You know, we should never think that actually. Jesus died because he was crucified. No, Jesus died because he gave up his life. Because he chose to. The Lord and Master over death and sin. So Jesus cried out and with a loud voice he yielded up his spirit. And verse 51 tells us this. Some awesome things that happened. And behold... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Three things Matthew tells us about that are all totally incredible that happened when Jesus gave up his spirit. The first one he says is this is that the curtain in the temple torn to and we know that curtain that curtain hung separating the holy place from the most holy place the very presence of god the the curtain hung there to exclude people from the presence of god to say you can come this far and you can go no further in regards to your relationship with god the holy of holies is cut off you're on the outside, and you're not permitted to enter. That's what the curtain said. You know, what it communicated. But when Jesus died, that curtain was torn in two. Torn in two. Now, I, I, I mean, you read about this curtain, it's like, it's hard to imagine. This thing was thick. Look at, like, you know, lots of yoke of oxen or some Chevy trucks or something like that. They're not, they're not going to pull this curtain in two. Definitely not a Chevy truck. I don't know. I'm just joking. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry Chevy guys. Yeah, there we go. This curtain is torn in, torn in two. And light shone into the darkness that was behind that curtain. You know, you think about the Holy of Holies. The presence of God had long departed from, from the temple. That 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 place was a place almost of darkness in behind that curtain. And when the curtain tore, the light shone into that darkness. And Matthew tells us something incredible that's worth noting, that the, that the curtain tore, not from the bottom to the top. This wasn't rent by human a human strength. This curtain that was some 60 feet tall tore from the, the top down because it was not man who rented this thing. It was, it was God. God who had been a mystery hidden behind the curtain became a revelation and light shone for all of humans and all of human history, and those who were excluded were now invited into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. And so, you know, when you think about the cross the Father turned his back on his Son, but when his Son died, the Father turned his back on his Son, but when the Son died, the Father turned his face to all of creation. And welcome them into his presence through Jesus Christ. And so the curtain torn is one of the triumphs of the cross. Matthew tells us also that there were, that the earth shook. That rocks split. It's interesting that in Exodus you can read that the very same thing happened when Moses was on top of the mountain and the law came down. And he was given the law. The, the earth Quaked and rocks split. And the earthquake at Jesus' death signified the demands of the law, the requirements of the law, uh, the, the judgment of sin, and all that the law requires in regards to that is satisfied through the death of Jesus Christ. He's conquered the law and he's fulfilled it. The third thing Matthew tells us about this really astounding too he says that tombs were opened. That many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of their tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and they appeared to many people. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Like it's like one of the little facts about the crucifixion and resurrection story that sometimes we, we miss. And it seems as though it, it probably went down like this, that the earthquake caused the, the dead bodies of many people to To be exposed. You know the stones rolled away from the front of the tombs. Rocks split. The earth moved. And in the midst of everything. All of these dead bodies were exposed. And people could see you know. These deceased people. But although the stones shook loose. And the bodies were exposed at the time of the crucifixion. The text. And when you look at a real literal text of this. it, It seems to point to this idea that though these bodies were exposed at the time of the crucifixion, they did not come out of the graves until after Jesus' resurrection. Because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus rose first. Then many of these folks rose and they testified to the fact and the reality of his resurrection. Can you imagine? Uncle Bob... You've been gone for like 10 years. I don't know. Whatever it is. It's like, it's crazy. This is Resurrection Sunday. You know, someone who's been dead for all these years and they come back and they testify to the reality of Jesus' resurrection. You'd be like, am I seeing a ghost? No, I've been raised from the dead. Verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place... They were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Centurions. Centurion was a man in charge of a hundred soldiers. In terms of soldiers, this guy's the real deal, man. He's not, you don't put anybody in that position. This is the real deal. And when this centurion observed all that was happening, he made this confession. This was the Son of God. Verse 55 tells us there were many women there looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary, of the, sons of Z- the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Oh, sorry, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. You know Mary Magdalene, Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee was Salome, and you remember she was the woman who came with her two boys, James and John, to Jesus and requested that her two sons be at his right and at his left when he came into his kingdom. You remember that? And I bet as Jesus hung there on the cross between two thieves, on his right and on his left, she remembered that encounter with Jesus and was thankful that he had said to her, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're asking for. Verse 57 says, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in, a cl- in clean linen, in a clean linen shroud, And laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. It's interesting that here's Joseph of Arimathea comes at his death. There was a Joseph at his birth, (laughs) uh, helping to raise him, helping him as a, a young child. And there was a Joseph at his death to help bury him. The other Gospels tell us that Nicodemus was there with him as well. And, and, and they're interesting characters because they were, they were like secret followers of Jesus. They were amongst uh, the Pharisees in the council. They were those who were had hearts for Jesus in, in the midst of that group. And you know, it's interesting how they just shine in, in this story. That These the secret disciples are the ones who really shone when things were things where they're at their darkest and it's true you know often those who follow Jesus sometimes those that are the the quiet unknown ones are the strongest you know the the 11 are gone we don't know where they are but here's Joseph and Nicodemus serving in the midst of this incredible time and they would have done this by participating in this they would have defiled themselves They wouldn't have been able to participate in the Passover because of this. Touching of the dead body of Jesus. And so they defiled themselves in their their love for Jesus. Verse 62. The next day, that is the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. You know, it's amazing that In terms of Jesus' friends and his followers, it's like no one remembered the promise of the resurrection. But his enemies did. His enemies knew that he had clearly said, after three days, I will rise from the dead. And the key word in this whole section, this last little section of this chapter, is the word secure. We've got to secure the tomb. We've got to make sure that there's no fraud and there's no deception and there's no trickery in the midst of This whole thing. We got to make sure that that body stays in that tomb until after the third day. And so Pilate gave them a guard of soldiers. That's four to 16 soldiers to stand in in front of that tomb. They would lay down their lives before they would let anyone in there. They also sealed the tomb. Put that seal of Rome on the tomb and it was death if you broke that seal outside of... uh, the permission of Rome. And so you, there's the tomb. It's, it's secure. And when you think about it, it's like the enemies of, of Jesus just help secure evidence for the resurrection. I mean, they, they, were, they were working for Jesus and they didn't even know it. They unwittingly were providing the most complete evidence for the truth of the resurrection. You know, when you think about it, they said, let's make the tomb secure. And they were actually making it possible to prove uh, that there was no deception. There was no deception in regards to his resurrection. Their seal and their guards became the the witness to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. Think about secure the tomb. Secure the tomb? Try catching the wind. (laughs) <laughs> secure the tomb tame the tide secure the tomb stop the sun from rising in the sky and try and stop Jesus from rising from the dead their scheming and their tactics became instruments that demonstrated the glory of God don't you love that don't you love how God does that with his enemies I think the father must have laughed look at that <laughs> Soldiers in a seal. They think they're going to stop my son. You know, as we wrap up this text, the reality is this, is that it was Friday, but Sunday was coming. And I always love that in regards to the crucifixion story. It was Friday, but Sunday was coming. You know, as we consider all these things, the thing that's just been impressed upon me all throughout Matthew's gospel in this passion account Is the fact that Jesus was in complete and total control of his situation. Not the victim, but a victor. A victor. No one took his life from him. He willingly gave it up because he loves you and he loves me. And he was not willing that any one of us should live in separation from God the Father in a relationship with him. Not the victim a victor.